Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. You could open your Bibles to Genesis 28. We'll continue the narrative of uh, Jacob. Now remember, Adam and Eve uh, were created by God in the garden, perfect and sinless. You need to understand that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and rebelled against God, God was not disappointed. Because to be disappointed, you have to be surprised. And God's never surprised. God knew that people would sin, and He had already put in plan a place to redeem them. In the beginning, God worked to redeem the human race as a whole. He worked with the, all, all the, the human race as one. However, before the flood, if you remember the first few chapters of Genesis, it says that the entire world as one monolithic block rebelled against God and spread, sin spread throughout the earth. Violence was everywhere, so God destroyed the earth with a worldwide flood. And as you know, only eight people survived that. Noah, three sons, uh, his wife, and their wives. He commanded Noah's descendants to multiply and spread out over all the earth. So God wanted the whole earth to be populated. That's why he built it. However, the entire human race gathered at the Tower of Babel and decided to build this tower in direct defiance to God's command. So God confused their languages. See, actually, we all spoke one language in the beginning, and God gave multiple languages, literally thousands of them. And so they scattered by their language groups. And the world is populated because various language groups could only communicate with people who spoke their language, so they moved away from that Tower of Babel site throughout the entire uh, world. Actually, we're never going to see the entire world united against God as a monolithic group until we get to the Great Tribulation. That's one of the reasons God scattered the human race. But the primary reason was for missions. The primary reason God instituted multiple language groups is he wanted to scatter and disperse the human race all around the world so he could win them back and redeem them one people group at a time, one language group at a time. God instituted a new program beginning in Genesis 12. He set apart one special group of people and he revealed himself directly to that one people group, that one language group, and he used them then to be his ambassadors to represent him to the entire world so that he could redeem the world back one people group at a time. And that special people group was the nation of Israel. Israel is so central to God's plan of redemption that five-sixths of the Bible is all about Israel. Five-sixths of your scripture is all about Israel. Ultimately, God is going to use the nation of Israel to bring the Messiah to earth, as Padre Roger talked about this morning. So in Genesis 12, God began this special nation with a man called Abraham. Abraham had a son named Isaac, who we talked about last week, who had twin sons, Esau and Jacob. And as we talked about last week, Jacob was, of course, the younger brother of Esau by a second or two. And Jacob was born into a quarreling family, a divided family, a family that played favorites. Dad loved the oldest twin, Esau, and mom loved the younger son, Jacob. Jacob's father... 
Isaac had planned on leaving the majority of the family's spiritual and material inheritance to the oldest son, Esau, even though Esau had already rebelled against God and basically said, I want nothing to do with obedience to God. So Isaac was in direct disobedience of God's command to Rebekah that the younger was going to rule over the older. And of course, as we talked about last week, Jacob's mother, Rebekah, hatched a plot to deceive her blind husband by dressing Jacob in Esau's clothing and an elaborate scheme to uh, cheat Esau out of, uh, out of the blessing that Isaac wanted to give him, and it was successful. Isaac was deceived and thought he was blessing Esau when in fact he was blessing Jacob. So Esau now is furious, plans on killing his brother, fratricide. So Isaac and Rebekah get together with Jacob and they plan to send Jacob 550 miles away to Rebekah's family in Haran to escape from Esau, number one, but then number two, to find a suitable wife for Jacob. Rob is going to put a map of Jacob's journey from Beersheba to Haran or Charan. It's about 550 miles north and east. <clears throat> and by aircraft, it's fairly quickly, but by walking, it is remarkably slower. Uh, they didn't have I-5 freeways to walk on. This was dirt paths for the most part, and you didn't have your wonderful Dr. Scholl's insoles, you were wearing sandals, okay? And so it was, uh, you know, if you could do 15 to 20 miles a day, that was probably pretty good. And it was a fairly dangerous road as well. We're going to get into that. So let's pick up the narrative, chapter 28, verse 1. So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. And from there, take to yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you, that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. Here's the principle. Do not neglect the spiritual growth of yourself or of your family. It is your highest priority. Do not neglect the spiritual growth of yourself or your family. It's your highest priority. So Isaac is now convinced that Jacob, in fact, is God's choice to inherit the promise made to Abraham. God had made a promise to Abraham and to Isaac, and now Isaac is convinced, finally, that Jacob is supposed to inherit that. But Isaac is a classic, passive father. At this point in time, he's taken next to no active role in the spiritual growth of his family. Matter of fact, he's done zero planning to help his sons find godly wives. As a matter of fact, 100 years ago, Isaac and Rebecca have been married about 97 years at this point. So this is, you know, I don't know what the 100-year anniversary is called. Diamond is 75, right? Is that correct? I'm not sure what the 100 is, but anyway, they've been married a long time. But almost 100 years ago, Abraham's father, I mean Isaac's father Abraham, had made extensive preparations to find a godly wife for Isaac. He had sent his chief servant, Eliezer, and a caravan of 10 camels with gifts and everything else, 500 miles from Canaan to the family uh, homestead in Mesopotamia to find Isaac, a godly woman of faith, to marry. So Abraham had been very, very diligent in the spiritual development of his son's marriage. So Isaac had buried Rebekah when he was 40. 
We think Rebecca's probably about 20, but Isaac has neglected the spiritual development of his family. It doesn't appear to have been a high priority for him because Jacob and Esau are now 77. Jacob is unmarried. That's a little old to start a family. But Esau has been married for 37 years. He married two women at age 40. They're both Canaanite, pagan uh, wives, and they have been nothing but grief for Esau, I mean, uh, Isaac and Rebekah. So Isaac and Rebekah have seen this pagan influence on their son Esau, and they finally figured out after 37 years, we don't want this for Jacob. We better do something about this. So Isaac commands Jacob, do not marry a pagan Canaanite woman, but travel back to Rebekah's family back in Haran and take a God-fearing bride for yourself among her relatives. Before Jacob leaves home, Isaac gives him the blessing, the Abrahamic blessing from El Shaddai, God Almighty, that God had promised to Abraham. Isaac now understands that it does belong with Jacob. And God had promised Abraham many descendants, a land, and most importantly, a blessing that would come through his descendants through the entire world, ultimately through Mashiach Nagid, Messiah the King. So application-wise, marrying within the faith is critical. If you're going to be one flesh and one spirit in your marriage, you need to be serving the same God. And if you are already married, the strongest glue holding you together is your common faith in Jesus Christ. Don't tell me I'm going to love this person till I die and I've got enough gas in the gas tank to sustain me for the next 50 years. You don't have enough gas in the gas tank. Because we are selfish. Yes? I know you're not, but when you look at your spouse, you go, well, yeah, I could be persuaded that they could be selfish, right? The truth of it is, Jesus Christ is the primary glue to teach us how to love each other. And as such, we as believers should always be encouraging the spiritual development of our spouse. We should always be encouraging the spiritual development of our family, of our children, and of our grandchildren. And that is not something that can be left to chance. Whether you're single or married, whether your children are adults or grandchildren or your friends, they all need to see our godly experience, our godly example, and our encouragement. The truth of it is, Sometimes they're not interested in listening, but the one thing you can do and should do daily, 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 and Clint and Marty just showed us how, pray, 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 pray. You bang on heaven's door with prayer 24 by 7. You cannot over pray for your children and your grandchildren because the Holy Spirit can get through where they will not listen to you. Correct? Say yes. Good. Now that you know that, Verse 10, so Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. Verse 11, he came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. Here's the principle. Regardless of where you are, God is waiting you will meet him when you stop trusting in yourself and depend completely on him. Regardless of where you are, God is waiting. You will meet him when you stop trusting in yourself and depend completely on him. Now, Paddan Aram's a long ways away. It's about 550 miles northeast of Beersheba. 
Jacob is a 77-year-old homeboy. He is a mama's boy. He's never traveled anywhere by himself. He is now a pilgrim. He's headed northeast. He's traveling all alone. He is in very, very dangerous company. He has, he's not a skilled hunter like his brother Esau. He can't live off the land. He's only carrying the provisions that he can carry with him, right? He has no armed servants, no caravan. He doesn't even have a tent. He's only taking what he can put on his back, which is pretty minimal. He probably left home in a hurry, and he's probably trying to put as much distance between him and Esau as fast as he can because Esau said, I'm going to kill you. Now, that will motivate you to move quickly. So he's probably moving pretty quickly. At this point in time, Jacob is undoubtedly confused. He's afraid and he's anxious. His past is a mess and his future is uncertain. Now, the name Jacob means deceiver, supplanter, heel catcher. He is a schemer. He is plotting and scheming his whole life, and up until now, it's always worked. He's been able to plot and scheme his way out of every difficulty. And now, his scheming has got him what he wanted. He got dad's blessing. He got the Abrahamic promise. But in order to get it, he had to be a liar. He had to deceive his own father. He had to cheat his own brother. He's not looking in the mirror and liking what he sees at this point in time. So he achieved the goal, but it separated him from his family. He's running for his life, and he's leaving the land of promise, the promised land, right? He's fresh out of schemes. He's beginning to be aware of one fundamental fact. He's becoming aware that he needs God. He's at the end of his rope. He doesn't know what to do next. He's all alone in the middle of nowhere, and he is exactly where God wants him to be. The text records that he came to a certain place. And that sounds kind of random. You know, we just kind of came to this certain place. Not so. God had already selected this specific site as the place where Jacob is going to have a personal encounter with God himself. And you know, for us, we think life kind of just happens. You know, I was going to this place and I just ran into this person. Or somebody just accidentally dialed me. Or my appointment here got canceled and I was walking out of the doctor's office and I ran into so-and-so in the waiting room. There are no accidents in God's kingdom. There's no mistakes. Everything is by divine design. We just don't get it 99% of the time. So God has already designated this, quote, certain place as the point where Jacob is going to meet God. Jacob is clueless, like us. In his lifetime, Jacob is going to have seven theophanies. Now, that is a direct encounter with Jesus Christ before his birth in Bethlehem, right? The pre-incarnate Christ. Seven direct encounters with God himself. This is the first one. And it's interesting that it occurs when Jacob is all alone and his hearing aids turned on. For the first time in a long time, he doesn't know what to do. And I find it fascinating that most of the time, God is far more ready to speak to us than we are ready to listen to him. Because we're usually moving quickly 
and it's usually loud. Have you noticed that the 21st century moves faster and things are louder? And that is precisely the kind of environment that Satan wants to create. Because if he can keep you ADD and on your phone, right? Always something going on, always noise going on. Will we hear the still, small voice of the Spirit? I'm going to advocate for a little more downtime. And I'm preaching to myself here because Maren looks and goes, yeah, right, Brad. <laughs> Practice what you preach. I know that. I'm under conviction. But most of the time, we are too busy pursuing our own agendas to hear God's voice and then do what he says. But God has a way of getting our attention. And you're going to see that with Jacob. Now, Jacob is he's in the city of Luz, which is about 70 miles north of Beersheba. If you can walk 20 miles a day, he's probably three days away from home. It's about six miles north of Jerusalem. And it says night falls before he gets to the city of Luz, right? All cities at that period of time locked the gates at nightfall. That's just for security. It was a very dangerous place. There were banditos and robbers everywhere, so you locked all the gates. He doesn't get inside the city before they lock the gates at dusk, so he travels till dark and then sleeps under the stars. He's not, this is normal for a shepherd. Shepherds sleep under the stars, so he sleeps under the stars, and there's no tent. And this, he thinks this is going to be just another night, but this is not an ordinary night for Jacob. Verse 12, he had a dream and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants." Your descendants also will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Underline that. And will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised for you. Here's the principle. Our God is an all-powerful, ever-present personal God who makes promises to his children and keeps every one of them. Our God is an all-powerful, ever-present, personal God who makes promises to his children and keeps every one of them. So Jacob is asleep and God reveals himself to Jacob in a vision while he's dreaming. And Jacob sees a ladder or probably more likely a stairway that goes from earth all the way into heaven. The stairway into heaven is obviously tall enough to go from heaven to earth, but it's also fairly wide because he says he sees angels ascending and descending on it, walking up to heaven, walking down to earth on this staircase. So the stairway illustrates that there's constant contact and there's constant communication between heaven and earth. Remember, angels are both ministers of God and messengers for God. Angels serve God in heaven and on earth, but they also, when you see angels, they carry messages for God from heaven to earth and vice versa. So Jacob sees that God and angels are constantly around him working on his behalf. See, Jacob's problem is Jacob thinks he's all alone. He's laying out in the middle of nowhere. All he can see is stars, and he thinks I'm all by myself, and here I am, my 
past is a mess. I've alienated everybody in my life. I'm a liar and a cheat, and I'm going someplace I've never been before. I don't know what I'm doing. And God says, you're never alone. You're never alone. I'm always present. And in reality, Jacob, you are surrounded by angels on your way to Haran, and you don't even know it. Now, angels are mostly invisible, but sometimes humans are allowed to see them. Hebrews tells us that angels are literally innumerable. We don't know how many there are, but there are a large, large number. We know that angels are mighty beings. We know that angels are designed to serve God's people. Hebrews 1.14 says that angels are sent forth to minister to them who shall be the heirs of salvation. That's you and I. Hebrews 1.14. Angels serve God's people. Angels are often depicted as flying. Uh, they apparently move back and forth from heaven to earth on a regular basis to do God's will. We don't see them. 99.99% of the time, God allowed Jacob to see angels, his messengers, his servants, going up and down from heaven to earth. So the stairway is a picture of angelic activity, but it's also a picture of God's accessibility. So Jacob needs encouraging. And God encourages Jacob. He's a stranger in a strange place and he's all alone. And Jacob hears from God. The God of Abraham is a personal God. It's not just Abraham's God. It's not just Isaac's God. It's Jacob's God. God has no grandchildren. God wants a personal relationship with Jacob. And for you and I, that should be terribly comforting because God knows your name. He knows your middle name. He knows the name your mama called you when you were in trouble. <laughs> he knows you. He knows your DNA. And he wants a relationship with us individually. So Jacob not only sees God at the top of this ladder, but God speaks to him personally and repeats the promise he made to Abraham and Isaac. And he says, look, I'm the same God that talked to grandfather Abraham and the same God who talked to your father Isaac. And this same God is going to promise Jacob the same three things he promised his grandpa and his daddy. First, God promises Jacob land. You know, we call Canaan what? The promised land because God made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. Even though Jacob is now leaving the land, God promises Jacob in the future, I'm going to bring you back into the land. You're not going to lose your inheritance. He's leaving the land to marry a wife, that's his plan, and begin a family 500-some miles away from home. Have you ever thought that Jacob might be tempted never to come back? Why would I come back? I mean, i got a brother back there that wants to kill me. Once I get over there and start a family, Lord willing, why would I show up back to Canaan? God says, you are coming back because this is the land of promise. This is the land where I am going to bless you. Canaan's just not any kind of real estate, by the way. Canaan is the promised land. Canaan's the land where God came down from heaven and met his people and made promises to them. The promised land is where God showed up to Abraham face to face and made him a promise. Showed up face to face with Isaac, made a promise. Now he's having a conversation face to face with Jacob. This land is special. It's the land in which the Messiah will walk and redeem the entire human race. So God promises Jacob land. Number two, he promises him descendants. He says, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the dust of the earth. Every time I read this, I smile. I'm saying, 
Did Jacob realize he's going to have two wives, two concubines, 12 kids, 12 sons, and one daughter? I mean, that would be a little daunting. If you knew that, you might turn around and go back and face Esau. You know, I mean, that's a lot to face. You know what I mean? Esau might be easier when you realize it. So, a lot of descendants. And as a matter of fact, he said, your descendants are going to spread out to the north, the south, the east, and the west. They're literally going to cover the earth. And third, through those descendants, I'm going to bless the entire world. And of course, ultimately, this is God wanted to use the nation of Israel, literally the nation that's going to come from Jacob. God's going to use that to bless the world, first of all, prior to the Messiah coming, and secondly, through the Messiah coming. So Israel is central to God's plan of redemption. Interestingly, God put Israel in the land bridge between Africa, Europe, and Asia. It's a land bridge. If you want to go to any one of those three continents, you've got to go through there. So the entire process of redemption in the Old Testament is very simple. Come and see. Come and see. God built a nation, talked to them, gave them the law, transformed their society, and any nation state that was doing a trade route or a military campaign had to come through the land. So God's strategy for evangelism in the Old Testament was come and see. Come to Israel and experience what I can do to this people. Now for us, Matthew 28 is go and tell, go and tell, go and tell, right? Make disciples. Go into all the world and make disciples. Same objective, different strategy. The last promise to Jacob is one of the most profound and personal and comforting. He says, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. You know, for someone who's all alone in a strange land, these are words of comfort. And most of us are not alone in a strange land. But uh, here about six months ago, I had a twitch in this shoulder and got an MRI done. You ever, you ever laid in an MRI tube? And, her, and they give you earplugs, you know, or earphones. So, that noise. And you're in this tube and you're laying like this and you're going, I don't even want to open my eyes and look at that tube because it's right in the end of my nose. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, even in the MRI machine. Wherever you go, whatever you do, in China, in Asia, wherever they are, I don't know. Here, in your family, in your job, in your health status, with your children, Wherever you go, God says, I am with you. And sometimes we are in strange places. They're brand new to us. We say, I've never been here before, God. God's already there waiting for you. He's in the MRI machine waiting for you to show up. Jacob's in a strange place and God was already there waiting for him. So I don't know what your week is going to bring, but I know whatever it is, good news, bad news, or mediocre, God's already there waiting for you. God would never abandon Jacob. He would always be with him. Over and over again in Scripture, God says, Fear not, for I am with you. Fear not, for I am with you wherever you go. Now I'll tell you why that was significant. In that era, people thought gods were local. Each village or each region had their own local gods, right? So the power of each god was limited by geography or function. So Baal was the god of the storm. 
The only power he had was over the storm. He was powerless over anything else. Ashtaroth was the god of fertility, goddess. That's the only authority she had. So all these gods were local, you know. They were regional gods. People thought if you left your village, you left your god in the village. Because your god only had power in that village. So there would be a god of Bakersfield. There might be a god of your neighborhood. When you left your neighborhood, you literally left your god. Right? That's, that, was, that was their concept back then about God. So Jacob is 70 miles from home. And maybe the God of Abraham doesn't have any power this far away from home. Kind of like your cell phone. You know, when you get too far away from a cell phone tower, what happens to the number of bars? They kind of go down, right? You may lose your connection. You never lose your connection with the God of Abraham. You can talk to him through prayer anytime, any place. You will never run out of bars in prayer. You'll never get a busy signal. You'll never get a hold. God is available, waiting, wherever you are, 24 by 7. He's never limited by location. His power is not limited by anything or anyone. He's the only one true God who rules over every place, everything, everyone, every time. Everywhere. Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last and there is no God besides me. Israel's confession of faith, the Shema says what? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Not only is the God of Avram the one and only God, he's also a personal God who cares. Isaiah 43, verse 1 and 2. God is comforting the nation of Israel in their exile. He's going to tell them he's going to bring it back. And he says, but now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. He doesn't say, if you pass through the waters. How many of you have ever felt like you're in over your head? How many of you felt, I can't swim. This current, these waves, I can't touch bottom. He says, when you're going to go through those waters, I'll be with you. You can take that verse directly and apply it to yourself. God formed you, your name. He who formed you, O Brad, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. He knows our names. We belong to him through Jesus Christ. What I find utterly intriguing and so comforting is not once does God condemn Jacob. If there was ever a screw-up, he's it. I mean, this guy has made a hash of his past. He's alienated people. He's lied. He's deceived. He's plotted. He's schemed. And God not once rebukes him. God only encourages him. God only makes promises to him. And that should comfort us. We've all messed up. We serve the God of the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth chances. See, our God is not only all-powerful and personal, but he's also a God who loves us and cares for us and desires to forgive us. And I can identify with Jacob. A lot of times we feel alone, and sometimes we, from a human standpoint, we are all alone. But God is always with us. He has made promises, and he will keep every single one of them. How does Jacob respond to this? Verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. 
and I did not know it. Verse 17, he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Here's the principle. Our responses to God's presence and promises should be one of worship and commitment. Our response to God's presence and promises should be one of worship and commitment. You know, the truth of it is, God is always with us. Amen? How often are we conscious of His presence? Have you ever wondered how we would live if you could literally see Jesus right next to you 24-7? I mean, every time you look, there He was. No matter what happened in your life, there He was right next to you. Would that change any of your behavior? Is there any things you'd say, I don't think I should probably be on this internet site because Jesus is right here and I can see him. Is there any stuff that we are afraid of that if we could see Jesus right next to us, we would say, yeah, what am I worried about? God himself is right here. Well, that's reality. God is here anyway. And Jacob has this vision of God, and he says what? He calls it awesome. Now, the root word of awe or awesome means to tremble, to quiver, or to shake. It literally means reverential fear. There's kind of a dreadful wonder here. If there's one word that is overused in our culture, it is Everything is awesome. French fries are awesome. Hamburgers are awesome, right? Commercials are awesome. You know, candy bars. It didn't matter. Everything's awesome. We've destroyed the meaning of the word. Awesome is far more than admiration. It's far more than enjoyment. Awesome has the connotation of being in the presence of something or someone that literally shakes you to your core that humbles you to the point in time where you start to tremble. You are not in control. And this something is so much larger and stronger that it is literally awesome. And of course, the Bible teaches that no one encounters God directly without being shaken to their core. After all, God is the creator and I am creature. God is holy and I am sinful. God is pure and I am polluted. God is limitless and I am limited. God lives forever and I will die. And when I die, God is my judge. And I will stand before him. If being face to face with Almighty God doesn't cause us to tremble, I don't think we know him. I think we evaluate him on human standards. And our culture does that. God is like us. No, God is not like us. God is other than us, completely other than us. He is holy, and he is infinite, and he's eternal, and he's pure. And he says, you be like me. When you look in Scripture, every single example of Scripture where humans directly encountered God, you see people terrified. You see people in abject fear. You see them with their knees knocking. You see them weak and pale. Moses meets God face to face on the top of Mount Sinai, and it says he fell on his face in holy fear. Samson's parents meet God in the field who tells them, here's how you're going to raise your son. And they fall on their faces, and they think, we're going to die because we've seen God. 
Literally, they think they're going to die. Isaiah 6, we see Isaiah having a vision of God in heaven and his holiness. And he says, woe is me, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. That cures some of our loose talking, I'll tell you. Daniel encounters just the angel Gabriel. says he falls on his face in weakness and fear. His face is as pale as a, as a ghost. I mean, he's just white. Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, and Mary, Jesus' earthly mother, meet the angel Gabriel. And it says they become extremely fearful in the presence of an angel. This is not God. This is an angel. Peter, James, and John see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they are so overcome, they never forget the experience. And the Apostle John in Revelation 1, it says he sees the glorified Christ, and he says, I fell down like a dead man. No strength, no energy. Jacob says, this place is awesome. I've seen God at the top of this ladder. He has spoken to me, and he says, this is a holy place. This is the gate of heaven, and his response is an appropriate one. It's one of worship and commitment, verse 18. So Jacob arose early in the morning, took the stone that he had put under his head, and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. He called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow and said, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take, and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and all that you give me I will surely give a tenth to you. So Jacob makes an altar of worship and pours olive oil on it as a symbol of his dedication. He then changes the name of that place. He calls it Bethel. Bethel literally means house of God. Like Bethlehem means house of bread. Bethel, El, a name of God, means house of God. And the truth of it is, the word if in verse 20 should probably be translated since. Since God instead of if God. Interesting. Our own Holly Colhane teaches presence points along with Doug, and she teaches that the Good Shepherd promises us three things. Provision, protection, and presence. That is precisely what God promised Jacob right here. Jacob says, since God will give me food to eat and garments to wear. Sounds like provision, doesn't it? Since God will keep me on this journey and bring me back to my father's house in safety. Sounds like protection. Since God will be with me. That's presence. So in response to this encounter with God, Jacob is not casual about his response. He says, I will worship you and you alone as God. The Lord God will be my God. Personal God. I want a personal relationship with this God of glory. And he said, furthermore, I'll give God a tenth of everything that he's given to me. Of course, we look at that and we go, well, Jacob, that's a little bit of insight because everything we have is from God, right? Is everything you have from God? Then why do we have trouble giving him even 10%? If the 100% you have is from him, why are we stingy and say, God, um, I, I can't give you 10%, I can't afford it. No, we afford what we want to afford. 
We spend money on what we want to spend money on. We spend money on what we prioritize. Is God a big enough priority for you to give? Jacob has figured out that God can do more with his 90%, if he gives God 10, than Jacob can do with 100% all by himself. See, people that refuse to give think, I can do more with 100%. I need 100%. God says, if you trust me with 10%, I can make the 90% go further than you can make 100% go. Do you think that the God of heaven and earth can make your 90% go further than you can make 100%? I can tell you after 40 years, yes. Beyond your comprehension, yes. The truth of it is God owns it all, including you and me. And our next breath comes from him. God tells us to give not because he needs your money. He owns the universe. You give because you need to give. It's good for your soul. When you're a blessing to other people, it will put more gas in your tank than you can imagine. So God's promised Jacob his personal provision, his personal protection, his personal presence. Jacob, I'll be with you wherever you go, even when you leave the promised land. God makes that promise to Jacob, and Jacob has no clue where he's going. If Jacob knew what was he was facing, he would turn around and go back. He is going to deal with his mother's brother, who is a more clever deceiver than he is. And Jacob the deceiver is going to get deceived. He's going to fall into his own clever traps. He's going to marry sisters. Not a good idea. Just saying. And he'll have two concubines with both of them, and he's going to have 20 years of virtual slave labor because God's got a lot of work to do in Jacob's life. For Jacob to go from a self-centered, deceptive, lying, cheating, 77-year-old boy child to a patriarch who God says, I'm going to name an entire nation after you so that I can bless the world. There's a lot of work yet to be done in Jacob's life. And when you look at this, you look and go, oh man, that ought to cause us to tremble because there's a lot of work yet to do in our lives yet. Amen? So when God says, your name, I will be with you and will keep you wherever you go. And you say, that's good, because God's taken me places I wouldn't choose to go on my own. Because God probably is going to take you places that are not comfortable. But they're vital for us to become, what did we say? Like Jesus. That's his mission. God's mission is very simple. I'm going to make you like Jesus, and I will arrange your entire circumstances and your entire life experience to shape you like Jesus and separate you from sin. That's the whole purpose. And so when we follow Jesus, like Jacob, we have no idea where we're going to go, but we know he will be with us. And therein lies our hope and our comfort. Jacob doesn't know how long he's going to be gone. He's going to be gone 20 years. He thinks he's going to be gone a few weeks. He's going to turn around and see his mother. He never sees his mother again. But God says, I will provide for you. I will protect you. I will be present with you. And Jesus, your good shepherd, has made the same promises to you. So trust him. And I know this week and the coming weeks and months, 
we're going to encounter stuff we'd rather not encounter. We would just as soon say, you know, Lord, if I hit the snooze on my phone and I wake up in 10 minutes, will all this go away? No. But he will be with you. So the true meaning of Jacob's vision is found in the Gospel of John. Jesus has just called Philip to follow him. He says, follow me. Philip says, no problem. He follows him. Philip finds his friend Nathaniel and tells him that the Messiah has come and is Jesus of Nazareth. And Philip's, you know, Philip's from Missouri. Philip says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip's a student of Scripture. You know, he knows that there's no prophet out of Nazareth. And Philip says, come and see. Philip says that more than once. He says, come and see. Look at the data. Come and meet Jesus. So Philip and Nathaniel are walking to see Jesus, who's several miles away. And Jesus says, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no guile. He's talking about Nathaniel. And Nathaniel says, How do you know me? Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree studying scripture miles away. And, and Nathaniel goes, Wow, you're the king of Israel. You know the future. And, and Jesus said, You think this is something? Really? John 1 51. This is to Jesus, to Nathaniel. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And you go, wow, that looks familiar. Nathaniel must have been studying Genesis 28. And that's true. Here's the principle. There really is a stairway to heaven. And his name is Jesus Christ. For those of you who've been around a while, there was a very, very famous tune written in 1971 called Stairway to Heaven. Jesus is saying that he himself is the ladder. He himself is the stairway to heaven. See, Jacob saw God above the ladder and angels ascending and descending, but ultimately Jesus says, I am the only one who can bridge the gap between sinful earth and holy heaven, between sinful humans and Holy God. Since you can't come up to heaven, God came from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus, who was born of a virgin. He's the only God-man in history. He's unique. He's fully God and fully man, represents humanity, represents God. He is the only one who's qualified to be our Redeemer. So man can go from earth to heaven only through Jesus. There really is a stairway to heaven. Not a place, it's a person. Name is Jesus Christ. Jesus said what? I am the way. No one comes to the Father but through me. So let's summarize our key ideas before Tom comes to lead us in prayer and praise. Number one, do not neglect the spiritual growth of yourself or your family. It is your highest priority. And as we mentioned, the number one thing you can do 24-7 is you can pray. Number two, regardless of where you are, God is waiting. Some of you might wind up in the ER. God's already there. Some of you might get a phone call you don't want to hear. God's already there. Some of you are going to have stuff in the next two weeks. You're going, I do not want this news. God's already there waiting for you. He will meet you. And our goal, our mission is to stop trusting in ourselves and start trusting fully in him. Jacob had to be brought to the end of himself before he met God. Number three, our God is an all-powerful, ever-present, personal God who makes promises to his children and keeps every one of them. Every one of them.
Number four, our response to God's promises and presence should be one of worship and commitment. He is our God. And lastly, there really is a stairway to heaven. And his name is Jesus Christ. This is a season where we're, everybody's supposed to be happy, you know. Celebration, lots of gift giving, and everybody expects everybody to be joyful. And this is one of the times of the year where there's more depression and more suicide and more angst and anxiety and unrest inside the human heart because people need Savior. They need a Savior. I love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.